Our text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 2. As many of you know, we've been studying the book of 1 Timothy. Last week we were looking at verse 1, and this morning we're going to make our way through chapter 2, verse 7. 1 Timothy is a compilation of six chapters explaining to us how to build the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, The church of Christ is perpetually being built. Um, I'm often amazed when I go to an airport, whatever major airport it may be, it seems like they're always building it, correct? (laughs) Same is true of hospitals. There's always cones, tape, building construction, and I'm I always think to myself, well, they're never done. It's never done. There's always something new being erected in an airport or in a hospital. But the truth is, the church is constantly being built as well. But not because we're trying to become bigger and better. Not because we need more room or more services. No, the church of Jesus Christ is constantly being built Because the church is always one generation from being extinct. Don't get me wrong. The church of Jesus Christ will last until Jesus Christ closes the the last church, until the end of time. But the local church is always just one generation from becoming null and void. That is to say that it is placed on us the responsibility of each generation to perpetuate the gospel of Christ. To keep on living for Christ so that the next generation will also be living for Christ. I love to see these old churches that have been around for over a hundred years. And here in the eastern coast, you see more of it than you would out west. There's a rich history there of gospel truth that has been perpetuated generation after generation. We here are just over 30 years old. It's about a generation. I've been here uh, long enough uh, to have seen some of you born and now married and starting your own families. It's It's a good feeling for me. Sometimes I feel like I've been too here too long. But it is really good to be able to see people growing up in Christ. But keep in mind, my friends, that with every generation, we have to compel others to consider Christ. And to keep proclaiming the truth in order to keep building the church of Christ. My goal is to do just that. Are you with me? Are you with me? perpetuate the gospel, build his church because there's another generation coming. That's our job. And that's what Paul is doing with Timothy. The church is relatively new. And Paul has placed Timothy there as a pastor in this pagan city called Ephesus. And Timothy, as a young pastor, is suffering from what many pastors, especially Uh, young pastors suffer from. He's a very timid person. He's young. The church is new. The church exists in a very pagan culture, in a very pagan society. One whereby the, the ideas of what 
the scriptures teach versus what the culture believed were polar opposites. And you could imagine how hard it was for Timothy, that young pastor, to address these things. To come and speak to people who are older than he and say, <clears throat> excuse me, about those three wives you have, let me tell you what the Bible says. About what you've been teaching in your Sunday school class, let me tell you what the Bible says. You see how hard it would be for that young Timothy? And as he's reading the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to him, he must have been shocked. He knew the Apostle Paul was right, but it must have been very troubling when he realized that he needs to address all these things, being a young and timid pastor. I'm sure that he quickly realized that these were not just words from the Apostle Paul, but rather the inspired words from God to the Apostle Paul, and thus he preserved it for us. And here we are reading it today. You see, the problem that the church faces is the same problem that the church in Ephesus faced. We face the same issues. And the issue is people. People. Here's one of the things that makes church work so difficult. Without people, you don't have a church. But with people, you have an out-of-order church. Where there are people, you will have trouble. No, no question about it. Now, now, please, don't use that statement as a license to do and live as you please. That's what some people say. Well, you know, people are people. And I'm just a people. Therefore, leave me be. I live as I want. And you just have to accept that. My friends, don't let that statement be a license for you to be obtuse or duplicit. Don't let that statement give you permission to be a troublemaker or hypocritical. All I'm saying is that this is the reality. Where you have people, you have troubles. Troubles that will hamper the edification of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's true wherever you go. When you go to school, the problem is not the homework load that you got. The problem is not the curriculum that somebody wrote. The problem is the person who gave you the homework and the per person who gave you the, or who wrote the curriculum. The problem's people. If you work for the union, in a union, and you know what the union hall is like. And what's the problem with the union hall? The problem is people who make improper decisions or people who act in a way without integrity. It's the same problem you have with politics. People making improper legislative decisions with ungodly ideologies. You know, politi politics would be great if it wasn't for people. <laughs> it's the problems you face at work. The problem is not your job. The problem is the people you work with. Or maybe the people you have to come alongside of who don't work very well and yet make the same pay you do. You see, it's always people. It's always people. Here's the common factor in all this, whether you're talking about the secular world or the church world. Uh, the issue, the factor, the common factor is people. 
broken, self-indulging, self-important, misguided, sinful people. But I can't say this. The problem is multiplied greatly when people who claim to be in Christ, people who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior, people who say, look, God is transforming me. I'm no longer who I used to be. And yet they live as if they did not know Christ. And they treat you as if they did not know Christ. Then the pain becomes deep and very lasting. And you know, it's very easy for me to forgive someone who may say something to me or treat me poorly but don't profess Christ. My thought is this, how else would they treat me outside of Christ? But it becomes very ingrained and disheartening and painful when the people of God act like the world. My friends, the pain there is deep, not quickly forgotten. The hurt and the damage lasts a long time. So you see, we are to build each other up in order to build up the church. Uh, Let me give you a few examples of what we see here in 1 Timothy as to what this young pastor had to address. There were several problems in that church. In fact, if you were to enter this church where Timothy was pastor, you would say, huh, I'm not so sure I want to go back. There were false teachers. We saw that already in chapter 1. People teaching things about Jesus Christ that were simply not true. If I were doing that from here to this morning, I would ask you, please don't come back. That's what was happening in Ephesus. There were also some leadership issues. Pastors, elders who were unqualified taking on that role as pastors, as elders. Uh, Elders and pastors is is the same thing. Uh, Really, I'm an elder. What do I do? I pastor. So elder is my title. What I do is I pastor, I shepherd. Another term that is often used is overseer. And in the church of Ephesus, People who were unqualified were actually filling these positions. You can imagine the chaos. There were also issues about gender role, gender roles. And there's something we don't even talk about these days. Gender roles, we almost have to whisper that. I mean, gender roles is something foreign to us. In fact, even gender is becoming something foreign to us. And yet the Bible speaks about it and certainly Paul writes to Timothy about gender roles within the church. There was also the issue of caring for individual groups, how to care for those who are young, how to care for those who are elderly, and what needs to be done for these particular groups within the church. And get this, there were wealthy people in the church who were using their money to influence the church. 2,000 years later, we see the same thing, right? It's amazing how things change and they 
stays so much the same. And so Timothy is being told that he needs to address all these matters. And you could imagine Timothy's reaction when he read Paul's letter, instructing him on what he had to address in that church. Now, this letter here that Paul writes to Timothy, it's not intended to be an indictment against this young pastor. Rather, it was to be an encouragement. Timothy, you have to do the right thing. You cannot ignore these matters. It's not going to be easy, but you need to do this. And in light of all this, Paul reminds Timothy of what he needs to do first. If these things are going to happen, if these things are going to be corrected, if indeed you are going to do what needs to be done, Timothy, you need to be praying. The whole of you. The church needs to be praying. And what we saw last week is the priority of prayer. Prayer is what will set the pace for properly building the church of Jesus Christ. It sounds over-simplistic, but no. As I said last week, prayer is a means by which God empowers his people. So we saw last week that in light of everything that could be said and needed to be said, Paul says, first, first of all, of first importance, offer all kinds of prayers. First of all, pray. In light of the troubles the church is facing, pray. And last week we saw from that one verse how to pray. And there Timothy said, offer supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. That is, all kinds of prayers. All kinds of prayers. Pray, 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 pray. So today, let's take a look at the very end of verse 1 and work our way all the way down to verse 7 in the time that we have. And let's answer the question, who should we pray for? And then, what should we pray for? So who should we pray for? Well, let's go back. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Again, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for who? All people. All people. That's who we should be praying for. And the word, word there, all, in the original Greek language means for every or all kinds. Every person or all kinds of people. In fact, very clearly he says all kinds of anthropos, all kinds of men, translated here in ESV as all kinds of people. That is to say, my friends, that when you sit down to pray, when we come together to pray, we should not be limiting our prayers to those we know. Let's be a little more creative. It's a big world out there. We should not be praying simply for those who are close by or, or for those who we agree with. It's so much easier to pray with for people we agree with, isn't it? We kind of don't want God to help those people who disagree with us. Oh, Lord, they're wrong. Therefore, stay away from them. Don't bless them. Uh, here, Paul is saying, pray for all kinds of people, which means don't pray just for those people you like. Sometimes we pray only for those who are sick, as if that's all there is to pray about in life. For those who are ill, and yes, they need our prayers, but there's much more than the ill to pray for. 
pray as well for those who are spiritually lost. But go beyond that as well. Paul here is telling Timothy, listen, Tim, a first importance is this, that you pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Don't limit yourself. And you'll notice here that Paul actually has a top-down strategy. It's a pretty interesting strategic way of praying. Look at verse 2. He says, pray then for kings and all who are in high positions. Is that surprising to you? He did not say, pray for those little hungry orphans. He said, pray for kings who are in high, and all who are in high positions, for emperors, and all kinds of people in high positions. And here's the rationale that Paul offers to Timothy and to us. Officials, legislators, leaders, kings, emperors, presidents need our prayers. For God's intervention in their lives. These are key people who need God's intervention. God's intervention in their lives are going to benefit them, but also God's intervention in the lives of these leaders are going to benefit you. They're going to benefit me. Why should I pray for them? Well, for their sake, of course, but also for my own sake. Look at what Paul writes in verse 2. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Notice he doesn't say that they, the kings, the leaders, would have a quiet and productive life. No, it says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You see, when we pray for those who are our leaders, our lives will be better if God is working in them. Rulers, legislators, impact how we live. Bad rulers are going to incite ungodly and undignified laws, making our lives very difficult, making our lives very disordered. But God-impacted officials will allow us to live well. As God is impacting them, their decisions, their votes, their laws, their rulings are going to impact us so that we can have a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified lives for the time that we're here on this globe. By the way, there are some very serious conversations being had at our state capitol over a a pending um, transgender legislation, which will, if passed, if ratified, will make New Jersey a transgender sanctuary state. And the least of it is that your tax money is going to pay for it for it. That's the least of the problems. But there are some very important conversations being had with these legislators from the scriptures. Pray. Pray that they will listen. Pray that their ears would be open, their eyes would be open, their hearts would be open. Pray, my friends, for these legislators. They're being picked one after the other by the man who was preaching here a few weeks ago. Pray for them. I must say that we, I think, are more apt to pray for those who are more obviously in need. Um, 
people with power, people who are influential are usually not at the top of what we would think are people who are in need of prayer. But it does make great sense, doesn't it? It's very strategic on the part of the apostle that we would pray for those who have the greatest impact on society. Pray for them and start there. Pray for them. Uh, Some years ago, my physician, who happened to be an elder at the church I used to pastor, he had a very growing practice as a physician in the New York region, as did his wife, the two of them. They were doing very well. He was a very respected physician. In fact, so well respected and so good at his um, work that he did not carry any malpractice insurance. And some people would say that's not very wise. Well, he was not a surgeon. He was an internist. He got sued a few times. He won every time. And he said, all I'm going to do is be thorough and I'll win every lawsuit if any comes. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Well, he decided that he was going to sell his practice, as was his wife, and they were going to move back to his homeland and they were going, he was going to pastor a church there and do a little medical practice on the side. And the entire church was surprised because he was quite the physician. And he lived as quite the physician. But this was his strategy. And by the way, it was a real disappointment for me in many ways because he was my physician. When I say my physician, is if I was sick, he'd come to my house and treat me. And then he'd write a prescription and then he would run to the pharmacy, fill the prescription, and come back and deliver it to me. You can't get it any better than that, right? And when he told me he was moving back to his homeland, he told me his strategy, and I said, that's very smart, very smart. And then he shared it with the church, looking for the church's support. And the church actually actually took exception to what he was looking to do. You see, what he decided he was going to do is minister to diplomats, to the wealthy, to the highly educated people in the community where he was born and raised. And the church said, oh no, your country has so many poor, so many people in such great need, so many people without any opportunity, you need to go to them. And he said, no, 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 I will get to them. But I'm going to get to them through those who are the elite in society. Those who are the rulers. Those who are wealthy. Those who are educators. And as God transforms them, they will reach out into the community to those who are destitute. And that's exactly what has happened over the last 30 years. Smart. He took it right from the scriptures. My friends, let me ask you this. Could it be, you tell me, could it be that our president, the president of the United States of of America, is making moral mistakes, advocating for things that are biblically unlawful, that he is promoting ideologies that are against the scriptures, Could it be that these things are happening because the people of God do not pray enough for him? Could it be that we are quick to mock him? 
quick to point fingers at him, but slow to pray for him. Could it be that we are expecting this man who does not know Christ to act as a man who does know Christ and we are not praying for him? Could it be? Notice here that verse 3 says, this is good. That is, praying for all, all kinds of people. Praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, beginning with our leaders. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, this is good. It benefits them, it benefits me, it benefits us. Pray for them. This is good. Notice at verse 3 as well, we see what should we pray for. It tells us there what we should pray for. You know, there is no shortage of things we can pray for. I know that my prayer list is long and always getting longer. Well, here, Paul directs our attention to one particular thing to pray for. One particular thing to pray for. Maybe you have noticed that in the Bible... Whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, seldom do you see the Bible speaking about praying for unsaved people. Have you noticed that? Can you think of a single text which says, pray for unsaved people? I'll give you two. The only two I can think of. This happens to be a very common way in which we pray, but what we see that it is not a common theme in the Bible. Evangelism is a very common theme in the New Testament, but praying for the lost is not. But we do have two, two examples we can share with each other, and two significant examples. One, of course, is Romans chapter 9, right there at the beginning of the chapter. There Paul prays and he yearns, for the Jewish people who are outside of Christ. He yearns in his prayer that they would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. He's praying for them. And number two is here, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul directs our attention to praying for people who are not yet in Christ. We see that praying is not only good, but if you look at verse 3, you'll notice that here Paul says, it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. It's not only good, it's pleasing to God. But notice something. Christ is not only our Savior. Yes, he is our Savior, but he's not ours alone. Look at verse 4. You'll notice there that he is the one who saves all kinds of people as they come to a knowledge of God and his truth. So the point here is that we should be praying all kinds of prayers for the salvation of all kinds of people. So at the very end of verse 3 and then verse 4, it reads this way, God our Savior, comma, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth course it correlates with what Peter wrote in his second letter chapter 3 verse 9 it reads this way the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance and we see other texts that are very similar 
Ezekiel 32, verse 18 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. And that verse is echoed in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And here Paul tells us then to pray. But maybe you're tracking along with me and you're wondering, how could it be that if God desires something, how could it be that if he's sovereign, he doesn't obtain it? How can God desire something and yet not obtain it? Isn't he the almighty God who does as he pleases? And the answer is, yes. Isn't he the sovereign ruler of the world, which no one can oppose and ultimately resist? Yes. How can God desire all people to be saved, and yet thousands, thousands worldwide perish daily? How can that be? Well, at least from our perspective, you see that there's a tension between God's desire and God's will. Do not confuse desire with will. God always accomplishes his will, my friends. His will is according to his purpose. What he wills will be, no question about it, what he has decreed in his will will come to pass. But yet, God finds no pleasure in the death of even the wicked. Why? Because death is the final stroke from which there is no turning back. One writer puts it this way, when God desires that all be saved, he is being consistent with who he is. When God says that he desires that all be saved, he is simply being consistent with who he is. Thus we read in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are thirsty and weary, and I will give you rest. Which echoes from Isaiah 55, 1. And though it does not please him that the death, that the wicked would die outside of saving grace, even that fulfills the purpose of God. Even the death of the wicked proves God to be right. God said this is the case, and even the death of those outside of Christ, as they die, they're proving Christ right. And what we see in Romans 9, beginning at verse 22, is that even the death of the wicked brings glory to God. Because there it points to the justice of God. It points to the sovereignty of God. It points to the fact that God will have his way. So it does not bring him pleasure, but it does bring him glory. Romans 9. Maybe the most unread chapter in the New Testament. My friends, God is able to save all men, but men are unable to come to him. And so they have to be enabled by God. That's what Jesus Christ said in John 6, 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Because our sin, because our sin makes us unable 
and unwilling to come to Jesus Christ. You, you know what troubles me is not so much the unbeliever who refuses to come to Christ. What troubles me are those who are exposed to the gospel ongoingly and they keep, they keep resisting Christ. Christ will have his way. Do not fight Christ. If he's calling you, come. Come. Today is the day of salvation. God desires that all kinds of people will come to him. Uh, we see here we, we, we see here more than simply God desiring for every person to come to him. What we see here is God desiring that all people will come to him, that all kinds of people would come to him. So the emphasis here is not on every person, but rather on all peoples. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people so that all kinds of people would be saved. And then you'll notice here that Paul then shares the gospel, essentially the Christmas message in verses 5 and 6. It reads this way, For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then the Apostle Paul writes our last verse for this morning, verse 7. He underscores for us who this all is. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher. And an apostle. He says, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, which suggests that there were people actually questioning him, saying, what are you doing trying to reach these Gentiles? You shouldn't be doing that. He says, no, I'm not not exaggerating here. I'm just doing what God told me to do. I'm not lying. He says, for this reason I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And here he explains who all is. All people. There are two kinds of people in this world. The Jew and the Gentile. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Most of us here are full Gentiles. Some of you, like me, have an inkling of Jewness in you. But we're Gentiles. And Paul is saying here that it is the desire of God to bring all people to himself. Jew or Gentile. I, by the way, he says, am reaching the Gentiles. Every kind of people. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle writes this, The gospel is the power of God that offers salvation to everyone who has faith, to Jews first and to Gentiles as well. So my friends, going back to where we started, we are to pray. Pray because it is not only good... And not only is it pleasing to God, but prayer is powerful. All kinds of people are saved as God's people pray for them. Consider this. Eternity is going to be impacted by your prayer life. When you stand in the presence of God in eternity, there will be people there in eternity because you participated in their salvation through prayer. And you're not going to say, wow, look at me. Look what I did. No, no. You're going to say, thank you, Lord, for allowing me to take part in the redemption 
of that person. And my hope for you is that there's going to be a long line of people you prayed for. Eternity will be impacted by your prayer life. Well, I know my verses here are all done, but I have one more point I want to make for you this morning. I want to share with you uh, three points that were made to me some years ago, and, and I think it'll benefit you as well. We talked about who we should pray for. We talked about what we should pray for. Let's talk briefly here about preparing for prayer. I want to share three P words with you. Preparing for prayer. How should you prepare for prayer? Here's the first one. They're rather simple, but don't let the simplicity uh, make it sound like it's not important. Now, these are very effective ideas for you to prepare and better your prayer life. The first one is this. Pray for your prayer life. Pray about your prayer. Pray. You know, it, it dawned on me some years ago that if my prayer life is lacking, then what should I do about that? Well, I should pray about what's lacking. I should pray about my prayer. When I'm lacking health, what do I do? I pray. When I'm lacking wisdom, what do I do? I pray. When I'm lacking patience, what do I do? I yell. No. I pray. I pray. When I'm lacking prayer, what should I do? I should pray. Pray about my praying. Pray that you will learn to desire this greater intimacy with God through prayer. Pray that you would have greater faith as you pray. Pray that you would be patient in waiting for the Lord so that you will persevere in your praying. Pray that you will not give up. Pray that you would have the discipline of prayer. So pray about your praying. Number two, plan to pray. Plan to pray. In other words, set a time daily to pray. It might be multiple times throughout the day. That's a good idea. I'm not suggesting that you lay down a rug and then bow on your knees and face Jerusalem. I'm not saying that. I am saying this, though, that you actively set a time aside to pray. Because if you don't, you'll find it hard to make time. I personally have learned that if I get to the office and I open up my email before I spend time in prayer, prayer will not happen. I have to set that time and make it a priority. And I would also say, plan your prayer by finding a place where you can pray without being distracted. It was Martin Luther who said that prayer is the only activity in life which a fly can hamper us from. Isn't that true, though? Go to a place where you can pray without being distracted and where you can stay awake. Make a list if you need to. Use a journal if that will help you. Use resources that help you to pray. You know, several of us have been talking about a particular book I've been using for years now called Valley of Vision. It is this book that has taught me how to pray beyond just the regular things of life. 
to actually look inward and consider who I am before God and pray with thought, pray with feeling instead of just Jesus help the sick. Valley of Vision, I recommend it to you. Written by Puritans. It's an old book. I would also suggest that you study what Christ has taught us about praying. Plan to pray properly by knowing how to pray, by understanding what Christ said. And here's the third P. Participate with others in praying. Pray about your prayer, plan on praying, and participate with others. Praying with others, I must say, is so much fuller than praying by myself. Because when I'm praying with others, and those of you who join us in prayer group, you know that. You are sharing in the needs of other people. As they pray, you pray. You pray along with them. Their prayer becomes your prayer. Your hearts become filled together. You listen to their words of adoration. You you feel no longer isolated as you're praying. Their words fill your heart. They fill your mind. They satiate your soul before God. And their experiences empathetically become your experience. You will discover that when you participate in prayer, and I must say it is hard, but you will discover that as you participate in prayer with others, it will encourage you. The hardest part is getting there. Making the time. That's why I say plan to pray. Make the time. Participating with others in prayer will also instruct you and train you. It will also unite you as you come together to be like-minded and as one body speak to God. Participate in prayer. Those are my thoughts for you this morning. I trust that they are filling your mind, but more so filling your soul. Let me remind you of what we said. Some points to remember. Pray for all kinds of, I'm sorry, pray all kinds of prayers. Pray for all kinds of people. Pray for all kinds of reasons, but especially for their souls. And Pray about your prayer life, plan a time to pray, and participate with others in prayer. And then, watch and see what God is going to do. Watch and see what God will do when God's people pray. I hope you believe that. I really do. It will determine whether or not you pray. As we move on this morning, I want to watch a six minute or so video of what we believe as a church. These are the beliefs of the Evangelical Free Church of America, and they are our beliefs here at Hope Church. What you find in the Evangelical Free Church of America are over 1,600 churches throughout America, and then there are hundreds more outside of the United States as well, into Europe, South America, Canada, Mexico, and so on. 
And these are the truths by which we are building up the household of God. We are doing it in conjunction with this denomination, but we are also very much involved in doing it ourselves here, for ourselves, for our community. This is what we believe. Gentlemen? Gentlemen?